so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, and uh, we are going to be in continuing in our series on the Beatitudes, and uh, we've been looking at this uh, from the idea that um, we live in a world, and, and particularly in our country, where about everyone I know wants to be happy. We, we like being happy. I don't really know anyone that likes not being happy. I'm sure there are people out there that way. I haven't met any. But we, we generally like to be happy. But the problem is, uh, it just seems like we're um, consistently unhappy. That, that nothing we do, uh, nothing that comes our way uh, satisfies our need for happiness. And, it, and we, may, we may be happy for a little while, but it, it tends to fade away, go away over time. And so we've been looking at this uh, because Jesus said in his word that he, he said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And, and I believe that Jesus wants his disciples and wants his followers to live a happy, blessed life. And, and yet we don't so often. And so we've been looking at this from that context and from that idea because I believe that Jesus meant what he said. I believe that when Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full, I believe that he meant what he said. It wasn't just this thought maybe that you might possibly be able to attain someday, but I believe that is something he really desires for his people. And so what we've been doing is thinking about that and looking at that by looking at the Beatitudes. And the reason why is because Jesus's purpose of the Beatitudes is to teach his disciples how to find true happiness. Now, we saw early on two weeks ago that the word blessed, and that's the way the Beatitudes start, blessed are those, and every one of them start with that word. But that word blessed literally means happy. But it's, it's not happy as in the way we look at it. Our culture and, and the way our society looks at happiness, it has everything to do uh, with our circumstances. As a matter of fact, the English word the happy comes from an old, uh, old English word called hap. Okay, hap. And, and hap had to do with chance or luck. Okay? And so the way we kind of get our happiness is... When chances go our way or when luck goes our way and when things are going our way, we tend to be happy. But the word that Jesus used here is not happiness that's based on circumstance. It's happiness that goes well beyond circumstance. It's a happiness that comes from a deep inner peace or a deep inner joy that is not needed or your circumstances don't have to be good in order to experience this kind of happiness. So that's what we've been looking at. Last week, we looked at the first way that we find true happiness in that manner, and that is to be poor in spirit. And we saw how being poor in spirit is vital to our salvation. And the only way to be truly happy in this world is to know that this world is not our home that our future home is in heaven, that is guaranteed for us. And so nothing that comes our way, no matter what the world throws at us or what we encounter in this world, we don't have, uh, our eternity is secure and safe, and therefore we can have an inner peace or an inner joy in that manner. So today we're going to look at the second one found in the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles open with me, I'm going to ask if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And we're going to read down through verse 4 this morning. And Jesus, seeing the multi multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. 
God, today I pray that you bless the reading of your word. And now as we examine it today, I pray that I would decrease and that your spirit living in me would increase. And that, Father, the words would be shared would be your words. And, and they would find the place in our hearts and our lives that they need to go. Father, you know our point of need. I pray that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Father, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. Father, you know every one of our hearts, and you know what we need today, and we pray that you would meet our need. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the way we've been looking at all of these Beatitudes, the way Jesus teaches this concept of, of true happiness or happiness that goes beyond circumstance is the, the really three ways we've been looking at it. Two of them are found in the text, and that is Jesus always gives a characteristic that's blessed. There's a characteristic that's happy, and then he gives a reason why that person that has that characteristic is happy. And then in between those two, I have added in a third one, and that is uh, some examples what that looks like. Because I think it's important for us to not just maybe comprehend it uh, from an intellectual standpoint, but maybe see some examples of what that means in the lives of others around us. And so that's what we're going to do again today. So the first thing I want us to look at is the blessed characteristic in the Beatitudes, the second Beatitude, that Jesus says is truly happy on the inside no matter what's going on around them. And he says that about, quote, those who mourn. That's the second Beatitude. Blessed, happy, are those who mourn. Now, of all the Beatitudes, this one might be most upside down of all the ones we're going to look at. Now, they all seem to be counterculture, okay? They all will, will kind of go against the grain of the culture uh, of what natural man would think would take to be happy. They all do that, but probably one that does it the most is this one. Blessed are those who mourn. And the reason for that is I don't think any of us would see someone mourning and automatically think that person's happy. I don't know about you, I've seen people mourning, and the word happy does not come to my mind very often when I see someone who is in mourning. And so uh, Jesus here, though, is telling his disciples that those who mourn, those who mourn are blessed. They're happy from an inner joy, or there's happiness from an inner joy for them. But how is that possible? I mean, how can someone who is in mourning be truly happy despite their circumstance? Because we generally are unhappy, and mourning generally happens because of a lack of happiness for whatever reason. And so what I want us to see this morning is I really want us to look a little bit about what Jesus means by those who mourn. Because some might take that and go, well, the word mourn, maybe another word for crying. And, and, you know, there are times where we cry out of happiness. I mean, there are times when we're joyful, when, when we have tears coming to our mind. If you, maybe your first child or your first grandchild or maybe when your, your last kid moves out of the house and you've got your freedom back or whatever. There may be times where we have some weeping or some crying that's joyful, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Notice he didn't use the word weep. He used a very specific word, those who mourn. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about that word mourn this morning because it really gives us an idea of what Jesus is talking about. 
The Greek word that Jesus used for mourn here is the Greek word pentheo. And pentheo is the strongest Greek word possible for mourning, and it is only used 10 times in all of Scripture. Only 10 times. And five of those 10 are repeats. What I mean by that, you, you find it in here in Matthew, mourn, and then you'll see it in Luke's account of the Beatitudes as well. So it's used twice, but it's one particular instance. So technically, this word is only used five times in the entire New Testament. Matter of fact, if you look over and you read, uh, here's a great example of why it's, not why it's important for us to understand the difference, because a lot of times we view mourning as someone who's crying or upset. But if you'll remember, the shortest verse in all of Scripture is John eleven thirty five, and it's easy to remember because it's only two words, Jesus wept. But the Greek word for wept there is not pentheo. It's a completely different word. So Jesus is trying to make sure we understand something that is radically different than what our culture says. And to see that, you have to understand what that word pentheo really means. Again, I've already said it's the strongest Greek word possible, and it's only used really five times in all of the scriptures this morning. Uh, but let me tell you and give you an idea of what that looks like by looking at the second thing for this morning, and that's the example. Because as we look at these examples, you're going to understand what this word for mourn really means. It has nothing really, I mean, crying can be an aspect of it, but that is not what he's talking about. As mentioned, again, it's only used five times, and I'm going to show you uh, four of them because the fifth one is actually involved in one of these others, and so I'll share with that as we go. The first example of this type of mourning is the disciples. The first example of this type of mourning is the disciples. It's found in Mark chapter 16. In Mark's gospel account of Jesus' resurrection, it's a very simple, his, his account's a little different than the others, but it basically gives the account that Mary Magdalene goes to the grave. We know that. She was the first one to go to the grave. She encounters a risen Jesus, right? And then she thinks that Jesus is a gardener, and so she asks him, what have they done, or did you move him? And then Jesus calls her Mary, and when, she, when he does that, she understands who he is and calls him Lord, and my Lord, my God. And he appears to her, and then Scripture tells us that she runs back to tell the others, okay? But in Mark's account, where she goes, and she goes to the same place in all of them, but in Mark's account, it specifically says what the disciples were doing. She goes back to where the disciples were, and they were, quote, weeping or they were mourning the loss of Jesus, okay? They were mourning the loss of Jesus. It says they mourned and they wept, okay? The only other aspect that it's used uh, that I didn't put here also has to do with the disciples is Jesus, when he did his farewell discourse in John, starting in 14, going through chapter 16 or 17, when he promised them the gift of the Holy Spirit, he told them very specifically that they were going to mourn, but that their mourning would be turned to joy. That's what Jesus told them. 
So the, the first time you see that word mourned used, it had to do with the disciples, and it was at the loss. Of, and you've got to remember what they had lost, what they thought in their mind. Even though Jesus had told them, and we kind of look over that because we have the whole story, and we read it, and we know it. Jesus had told them that he was going to rise from the dead. But when he died for three days and was in the grave, they forgot that. And, and you've got to think about these who had put all of their hope all of everything of their lives into following this man who they believed to be the Messiah, the chosen one, the Christ, the one that would, would save them and, and fulfill his, his, not just his uh, as Savior, but he would be the Lord and reestablish a kingdom. That's gone. Jesus is dead. And what do they do? They retreat into a room and they mourned for him. Okay? The other place that you'll find this is in Luke chapter 6, Luke describes that, that those who mourn in this manner are those who find all of their joy in this world alone. And he said that those, those who find joy in this world will mourn. And the idea is that those who have and take no account of eternity, they take no account of what the next life has to offer, and they find only their joy in this world that one day they will experience eternity and they won't be prepared for it, and they will mourn because of their condition. All right? The third time and the third example of, what, of where we see this word used in Scripture is Paul uses it. Paul uses this word in his second letter to the church in Corinth. Now, if you'll remember, the church in Corinth had a lot of problems, a lot of problems. And, and Paul spends two letters trying to straighten this church out for all the issues that they had going on around them. I mean, he, he talks to them about things from their contentions to their jealousies to their fits of wrath, their selfishness, their backbiting, their conceits, their uncleanliness, their fornication, their lewdness, and that is just a few of the very specific problems that that church had that Paul addressed to them. But at the very end of his second letter to the church in Corinth, he told them that when he came to them, if they had still not repented of their, of their ways they were living, of the sin, the unconfessed sin in their church, that he would mourn for them. So that's the other way it's used. Paul used it to describe one who would mourn over the unconfessed sin, unrepented sin of someone else. And then the last way I want you to understand and see the example, the only other time it's used, is in Revelation chapter 18. Some of you on Wednesday night, you might, you're going to get a preview of this. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about it in a few weeks. But in Revelation chapter 18, we have the story of the fall of Babylon the Great. And no matter what your view is of Revelation or anything like that, the, the point of this and what we need to understand this morning is what is described in Revelation 18. In Revelation 18, there is a, a city, a town, a nation, whatever you want to describe it as, called Babylon the Great. And in Revelation chapter 18, Babylon the Great is utterly destroyed and defeated. And the Bible says that the kings of the earth and the merchants of the world will mourn the loss of Babylon the Great. 
And the reason why is because in that moment, in that time, Babylon the Great was the source of everything they held near and dear. All the goods that were worth any value came from Babylon the Great. And Babylon the Great is now destroyed, and so everything that the people of the world at that moment put all of their hope in is now gone. And the Bible says that they mourned in that way. Now, that's some examples. Now, I'm going to go back to the definition. The definition is the strongest Greek word possible for mourning. It literally means to wail, to, to have deep, intense mourning to the point that it would manifest itself in wailing. Now, I'm not talking about going fishing when I say wailing. <laughs> I'm talking about being so upset that you are crying out with everything within you because of these situations. That's what he's talking about. So Jesus says, blessed are those who are so utterly brokenhearted, so utterly broken in spirit that they are weeping and wailing at their loss. Blessed are those people. Now, note what those four things I just looked at, what that tells us about this type of mourning. It, it tells us that this type of mourning comes from the loss of a, of, a, of a loved one, a precious loved one in your life, or someone that you had all your hope and all your faith into, and now they're gone. That's the first one. That's where this type of mourning comes from. It comes from the finality of realizing eternity without being prepared for eternity. It's, it's the word that's used to describe the lost when they die. The other way is it comes from a lack of the repentance of sin for others. It's to, it's to see people hurting because of the sin in their life and to mourn because you know the end result of that sin. And when was the last time you mourned like that? For most of us, for most of us, that, has, that type of mourning has come at the loss of someone we hold near and dear to our heart. That's not everyone you know. Not everyone you know you mourn for, not like this. But those who are really close to you, maybe a parent or a sibling or a child, would lead you to that kind of mourning in your life. But what about the others? Uh, this is maybe a little bit off track a little bit, but, but when was the last time you mourned? Not just because you lost a loved one. When was the last time you mourned because someone you knew wasn't prepared for eternity was now there? When was the last time that you mourned because there was someone you knew living in sin and refused to repent of that sin, knowing the end result from it? When was the last time you mourned for unconfessed sin? I can tell you that one for me. I remember it like it was yesterday. And it was about 10 years ago. And I'll be honest with you. It's about 10 years ago. And I was preparing a message on the sanctity of human life. And as I was preparing that message, I was looking for a video to go along with it that morning. And I stumbled across this video, and it had a lot of good reviews from a lot of pastors saying this is a powerful video for Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. 
And, and so I turned on that video, and, and I, I, I have to tell you, I couldn't even use it on Sunday morning because I believe um, it was almost too powerful. But I remember watching this video. An ultrasound. I can, I can describe it to you. It's an ultrasound going on. And in the background, you can hear the, the voice of the parents and the talking uh, between them and the doctor. And you're kind of trying to make out the conversation. But in the womb is an ultrasound. And here's this precious unborn child in the womb. It's supposed to be the safest place for a baby. And here's this precious child in the womb in this ultrasound moving around and you've got a little bit of baby music playing in the background. It kind of brings a smile to your face and you're thinking, oh, this is precious because it is. And then all of a sudden you hear the doctor say, are you sure? And you hear the mother say, yes. And then you see this, this horrible image of something being put up there and clipping the back of that baby's neck and I lost it I, I, I wasn't just crying I was weeping and wailing over the unconfessed sin of our culture for abortion that's what he's talking about when Paul says I will mourn for you. He's not just saying, I'll be upset with you if I come and you haven't repented of your sin. He is weeping and wailing over the lack of repentance of sin in the lives of others. You know, sometimes we see people and they're not repenting the way we think that we want to. And our, our, our response is to get irritated with them. And Paul wasn't going to get irritated with them. It was going to break him. Because he understood the end result of being unrepentant. So again, that's a little bit off track, but that's what he's talking about. But it is a challenge to us that we ought not just mourn for the loss of a loved one. We ought to mourn when we know someone's lost and dying without Jesus. And we ought to mourn when we see people who are refusing to repent of their sin because we know the end result of that sin. So that's the examples. That's what this, that's what this mourning looks like. And then here's Jesus saying, blessed are those who mourn in this manner. Now, how in the world? Is that possible? I, I mean, you just look at it. How, how does that work? How is it possible for someone who's in such deep brokenness of spirit, brokenness of heart, that it is manifesting themselves in a deep, mournful way that, that shows itself by, by weeping and wailing uncontrollably because of these situations? How is someone like that happy? Well, well here's how. Remember and here's what we need to remember. Being happy in the midst of mourning doesn't come from the mourning. It comes from the fact of what Jesus said. Look at what he said in verse 4 at the end of it. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are brokenhearted, broken-spirited, to the point uh, that they are in deep spiritual grief and mourning that manifests itself through weeping and wailing. Blessed are those who mourn over the loss of someone close to them, over someone who's lost and, and died and has gone to an eternity separated from God, or from those who would not repent of sin in their life. Blessed are those who mourn because of those things. Listen, here's the reason. For they will or shall be comforted. That's the blessing. That's where the blessing comes from. That's where the happiness comes from. It doesn't come from the morning. It comes from the fact that our Father will 
comfort us in our time of need. That's where we're blessed, and that's why we're blessed in the manner when we're mourning. We are not like those who have no hope. We're not like those who have no one there to care for us or to, to comfort us or to encourage us. We have a good Father in heaven who will comfort us in our time of mourning. Now, how does he do that? Well, there's two ways specifically as we close this morning that I want to share with you on how our Father provides comfort when we are in mourning because of these situations. Number one is He provides comfort to us through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit. There's a great book out if you like to read. It's a, it's a pretty good book. It's called The Forgotten God. And it's a book about the, the, the power of of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Now, we as Baptists, sometimes we de-emphasize the Holy Spirit because we don't want to be labeled charismatic, okay? But in doing that, we've lost a lot of what the Holy Spirit really does in our lives. So let me give you a few things that the Holy Spirit does for us. First of all, the promise of the Holy Spirit comes from Jesus himself. In John chapter 16, Jesus told his followers that, that when he left, that he would send another counselor, okay? And that counselor would do many things. One of the things that he says in John 16 that this counselor would do is to bring conviction to the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He would convict the world of sin, that there is sin. There's a God who has a standard of righteousness, that God's standard's the right standard and ours is not, and that judgment is at hand for anyone who doesn't live up to that standard. That's one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. That's in, in, that is an integral part of salvation. If you don't have conviction, you ain't going to be saved because you don't have an idea that you need to be saved from anything. But one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction. But I love how he says it. He will convict the world. So anybody that's out there that says only the Holy Spirit only convicts he, who he wants to, Jesus said he's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So he come to convict the whole world. But the other thing, that Jesus said is at the end of Matthew or uh, John chapter 16, and he says, it is beneficial for you that I go away. For if I go away, I will send another comforter, and he uses the word comforter, to you. See, the Holy Spirit comes as a promise of Jesus to comfort us in our time of need. He's a comforter to us. Now, here, here's some ways from Scripture that he comforts us. He, he fills the void left by the loss of others. He will fill the void left by the loss of someone close to you when you're mourning because of loss. I, I like the way the psalmist wrote it in Psalm 68, verse 5. He says that God will be a father to the fatherless. How does he do, do that? He does that through the power of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, that's the very first funeral sermon I ever preached in my life. I was a 19-year-old. And it was for my grandfather, who I shared a birthday with. And I had no idea what to say, and I knew he didn't want a big service, and they wanted me to do a graveside, and I had no idea what I was doing. I was 19, but I knew that my grandfather had three children and that he was basically a father to a lot of other kids who were friends with my, with my, with my dad and, and his sisters and that's the verse the Lord led me to, Psalm 68, 5. God will be a father to the fatherless. 
He, he, he's the Holy Spirit in John 16, again, he, he will convict us of sin in order to restore fellowship with God. You, that's one of the differences between the Holy Spirit's conviction and Satan's condemnation. You see, Satan brings our sin up to keep us suppressed, keep us down. God, through the Holy Spirit, brings conviction of sin in our life so that we will repent of it to be restored to him. The purpose of conviction by the Holy Spirit is always restoration. Just as a parent would bring up something to their child that their child has done wrong that's breaking the fellowship of their relationship, but they, you don't do that to, be, to put your kids down. You do that so your relationship will be restored. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He frees us from the guilt which is left by the, un, by the sin in our life. You and I, we have sin in our life, and guess what? We're forgiven of that, but guess what stays behind? The guilt of the sin stays. And Satan's going to use that all the time. He's going to throw it back up at you all the time. You did this. You did that. If you were a Christian, you wouldn't do this. And he, so even if you've repented of it, you've turned away from it, guess what? It'll show back up. It'll creep back up. Why? Because that's what Satan does. But the Holy Spirit comes to ease the guilt of sin that's been confessed, according to Romans chapter 3. He reminds us we're not alone in our time of despair and our time of brokenness. Hebrews chapter 13 assures us that you're not alone. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And the Holy Spirit reminds us that we're not alone when we go through these times of despair. He reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Romans chapter 8. He assures us that we are his children, and he loves and he cares for us, according to 1 John chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 1. The Holy Spirit is used by God to comfort those who mourn. The Holy Spirit. And the second way that God comforts us when we're in mourning is through the use of others. He uses other believers. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 1.3. Just listen to this really quick. Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulations. So that I probably could have started with that verse to start the point on that God comforts us. Right there. And, and most of us have probably heard that verse, but that's where we stop. Blessed be the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who comforts us with all of his comfort. And we stop right there. Through all of our tribulation, he gives us all comfort. But look at what he continues to say. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any tribulation with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. So one of the reasons that God brings us the comfort through our need is to bring comfort in the time of mourning, but it is also brought to us so that we, in turn, can turn around and bring comfort to those who are in the need that we were in. God wants to use us to bring comfort to other people. Now, this is one, one of many reasons why coming to church and being plugged into a church is vital. It's vital, and there are a lot of them, but one of the reasons is we need each other. We need comfort from one another. We need someone to step up and be an encouragement to us. We need someone to do what Paul would tell the church in Corinth, to bear one another up. We need someone that will pray for us and that will encourage us, even challenge us. We need someone who is going to, um, to, to provide for us, to care for us, in our time of brokenness. And here's the deal. When you are not plugged into church, you can't do that. 
And, and here's another thing. When you're not plugged in, it's hard for someone to do that for you. I can't count how many people have gotten irritated over the years of my ministry because they've went through a deep loss in which they were mourning, and they didn't feel like the church offered any care for them. And I ain't seen them in years and years. Matter of fact, it happened to me one time at Lone Grove. I had someone come through the line one time, and they were upset, <laughs> upset with me. And uh, number one, this person didn't come to church, but very rare, very rare, and was upset because they were sick, and I didn't come visit them. And I said, well, I didn't know you were sick. You didn't? And I said, no, I, I must have missed the class in seminary about being a crystal ball reader. How am I supposed to know if you don't tell me? And if you don't come to the church, how's your church family supposed to know when you're struggling? No one has the gift of that. We don't just figure that stuff out. Matter of fact, that's why James says, if any of you are sick, call among the elders. You notice who's Who's supposed to do the calling? The one who's sick. And then those who are spiritual and the elders go to them and pray over them. But when you're not plugged in, how can you receive the care that the church is there to provide? Because you're not plugged in. And, and so there's many ways that, that God brings comfort to us. But the main two is that he does it through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. He would comfort us in our time of need. How does he do that? By teaching us all things and reminding us of everything that Jesus said. And then he does it through others. By providing for us other brothers and sisters in Christ who are there to pray for us, to care for us, to encourage us, to lift us up when we're in our time of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. 